Well, we're turning to that psalm that we have just sung. Psalm 100. As we uh, begin a... A series this summer, as we're taking a hiatus from Acts, to look at the various covenants that we find throughout the Bible. Um, and this week, consider something of a, a, um, an appetizer for that. We're considering today why that matters. Why does studying the covenants matter? I, I want to prove to you that it does. And uh, hopefully instill with, in your hearts uh, something of the heart of this psalmist and those who sing this psalm, and that is absolute wonder and worship before the God of promise. So, Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord It stands forever. I think a constant struggle for many Christians is finding the connection between doctrine and life. Uh, Doctrine, theology, and and practice. What is my study of of the nature of God, for example? How does that inform my day-to-day? There seems to be this tension. Uh, We can be so... um, we fear that if we're so book smart, if we care so much about theology, then, uh, well, it's as though our head's in the clouds and, and we don't care enough about uh, day-to-day things and uh, our brothers and sisters and caring for them. That tension, though, it's, it's just a, it's an apparent tension. It's not real. There is nothing more important to our faith in life than having good theology. And that's something I want us to keep in mind as we start uh, uh, this series looking at covenant theology. I want you to know it matters. It certainly mattered to ancient Israel. Did you know that they could not conceive of God apart from the concept of covenant? They had no idea who God was unless they were talking about a God of covenant. They recognized that they had no relationship with him outside of the category of a covenantal relationship. They saw that that theology was immensely practical. They saw that doctrine fueled their discipleship and their doxology and their devotion. Without that doctrine, they were dead. They were nothing. They had nothing. We see it in their prayers of distress as you read through the Old Testament in the Psalms and in the prophets when they cry out to God and they ask that he would remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promise he made to them, to their forefathers, for their sake. Anytime in Scripture there is... Uh, There's reference made or there's an appeal made to God's work with Israel's forefathers. That's that's, uh, accessing covenant theology. Or even we see it in their their, um, 
their songs of praise, their addresses of praise, where they thank God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Those are key covenant words. When you start to think about these various um, hints into covenant theology, you see that it's all over the Bible. So, what is a covenant? What is covenant theology? Why does it matter? Well, I want to give some brief answers at the onset here, but then we will um, answer them throughout the summer as well. What's a covenant? Well, there are many ways people could define a covenant. The simplest is to say this. A covenant is a binding promise. Not a promise. A binding promise. Uh, That is, a covenant is a commitment between people, between at least two parties, and that commitment is solidified or secured through threats, curses, and blessings. Or we could say it's a commitment with consequences, good or bad. If I, uh, you know, just as a silly example, if my wife calls me when I'm out doing errands or something and she says, um, uh, bring bring home a gallon of milk. And I say, okay, I promise to do that. I've not entered into a covenant with her, even though I made a promise. It's not really a binding promise. But if it went something like this, if she said, bring home a gallon of milk, and I said, Yes, I promise to do that. And she says, and if you don't, well, then you won't be able to hang out with your friends later this weekend. Or there'll be some sort of consequence for breaking that promise. Well, that now we're getting a little bit more into covenant, right? A commitment with consequences. It's a promise that's so big, so important, so consequential that there are means to ensure that it is kept. So if the promise is fulfilled, there's rewards. If the promise is broken, there are terrifying sanctions, And so the people within a covenant are bound together in this way. It's a binding promise. It creates a relationship between people. That's a covenant. What's covenant theology? Well, covenant theology simply traces out how God deals with his people through such binding promises. That this is how God works. Covenant theology shows us that God relates to us through these firm commitments. It shows us that we have a relationship with God that's constituted by a serious pledge, a serious and big promise. And the essence of covenant theology can be distilled down to this one phrase, and it's very important, and you're going to hear it a lot. Don't forget it. The phrase is this, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the essence of covenant theology, a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. We hear it first in Genesis 17, verse 8. God to Abraham, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We hear it in Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. Leviticus 25 and verse 45. I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. It's the purpose clause. Why did God enter into a covenant with Israel? That I might be their God. Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It's throughout the whole Bible and we even find it in our text today, don't we? Did you see it? Psalm 100 helps us in this regard. It's right in the middle. That theme of covenant right at the center of the psalm in verse 3. 
We are his. We are his people. It's at the center of this psalm, in the center of the Bible, and it needs to be in the center of your life too. That is to say, you need to build your life on the the assurance that you belong to God. And it gets even better than that. Because it's not just that you belong to God, it's that he belongs to you. That's an astounding thought. We could just stop right there and talk about that the rest of the sermon. That's not true of every relationship. Right? My dog is mine. I am not his. Don't let him tell you otherwise. Maybe when we think of the family, we get a little closer. Right? Spouses can say to one another. Right? A husband can save his wife. She's mine. And she can save her husband. He is mine. But that's, that's the beauty of, of God's covenant is that he wants us to know not just that we're his people. Right? He doesn't just repeatedly declare this, this kind of sovereign declaration, you're my servants. What he seems to repeat more often in the verses I've just read is the part that seems to be the hardest to believe. Not that we're his people, that we belong to him, but that he says, I'll be your God. I will belong to you. You'll have access to me. Is there anything more assuring in life than knowing the God of the universe has opened up himself to us and says, you can have me. I am yours. This is why covenant theology matters. It'll change your life once it clicks, once you get it. I want to use Psalm 100 to set the stage for why Knowing the God of the covenant matters. It really does. I believe it will change you, at least in these five ways that we're going to cover briefly today, that it will make you joyful. It will make you worshipful. It will make you humble also. But it will make you thankful and confident as well. Let's move through those today. First, the psalm teaches us that there is joy to be had when you know a covenant God. It will make you joyful. uh, Verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Those who recognize that they belong to a God who builds his relationship with them, not upon their performance, but upon his promise, those people have much reason to rejoice. And that's true for you if you're a Christian today. It's not about what you could ever do, to him, do for him. It's about what he has promised to do for you. A child who grows up under the severe, the stern uh, glare of a mother or a father will do much to try to win their approval. Um, in, in all things, in every stage of life, from the, the finger painting project in, in preschool to, to being out in the field in the big game in high school, everything will be an opportunity for that child, a desperate attempt for them to revoke a glimmer of approval from their parents, to see a sign of happiness or joy even, but the opposite should be true. Our children's joy should be fueled from our joy in them, from knowing that we love them, that we accept them, that they are ours. Likewise, knowing that God rejoices to call us his people makes us want to come to him in joy. We already have his approval secured because of Jesus Christ. How could we come in any other way than With a heart of joy, there's no fear of him ever casting us off. There's no trepidation that perhaps today he won't receive you. And that's why joy should be the defining characteristic of the Christian. Paul talks about that 
In Galatians, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. There's much truth in that, that children's song. There's joy, 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 joy down in the heart of the Christian. But that joy comes from knowing that there is a God who rejoices first in us, that he delights in us, that he loves us. That's what covenant theology teaches us, that God loves us so much that he would go to any length to make us his. If God would make me a worthless wretch, his beloved child, then I will give myself in joyful worship to him. And I want others to know that worship too, that joy as well. Did you note the evangelistic flavor of verse 1? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, everybody, all the earth. Yes, I will make a joyful noise because I am his and he is mine. But I want you to experience it too. Second thing we learn from this psalm is that when I know the God of the covenant, not only am I joyful, but I will express that joy primarily in the context of worship. So it makes me worshipful. On the contrary uh, to feeling uh, a sense of fear that I might not be welcome, verse 2 says that we are invited into his presence. I'm actually welcomed into his presence. Come into his presence. And if that's true, of course I'm going to come with a song on my lips. So the one who understands what it means to be in covenant before God will will come as a servant before him, bowing before him, ready to hear his word, ready to do his will. The one who, who gets what it means to know this covenantal God will want to come to him. Every opportunity that is afforded. Of course, we can encounter God In all sorts of ways, when we read our Bible at home, when we're praying before uh, dinner, uh, in one sense we could say because of providence, because of his omnipresence, we meet with God uh, everywhere. We, We encounter God everywhere. And yet, and yet there's a special appointment that God has established with his people. We call it the church, within his courts. And so what happens on Sunday between Christians and their God is fundamentally a covenantal event. God is reminding us of his promises to us, of our obligations to him. He renews his grace to us in the preaching of the gospel. He tells us again that we belong to him. He, he sends us off into the world with his blessing. And so, yes, worship at times, it feels like a burden. It feels like a bore. Some of you even now are, are fighting to stay awake. I get that. And yet, when it clicks, when the unfailing promises of God and how he wants to show them to you, when that clicks for you, then the thought of wanting to be anywhere else is immediately unappealing. No, I want to be here on this day with these people in this house because I'm meeting with my God. Covenant theology, rightly understood, makes us joyful. It makes us want to worship, but it also humbles us. As we look at verse 3, we see the psalmist is sure to orient us properly to the dynamics of our relationship with the Lord. What do we read? Know the Lord. He is God. In other words, we aren't. He is God. We are not He's the creator. He's the one who made us. We are his creatures. Did you know that every problem that the unbeliever faces in their worldview comes back to this fundamental issue? And that is, 
obscuring the, the creator-creature distinction or, or, or throwing it out entirely. Paul says in Romans 1 that they worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And if you want to be blessed forever, you worship him. And, and right now we see it. You, you can't go down the street without being inundated with the, the flags that are being waved. At, what is it at bottom? What is happening? The creation the creature, the wants of the creature are being worshipped rather than the creator. And so the psalmist has to say, know that the Lord is God, as though we could forget it. Because guess what? We do. Know that he made you. Because you probably forget that from time to time. Uh, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, right? Know the creator in, your days, in the days of your youth. We need to know that we belong to God by grace, he belongs to us, but we cannot forget who initiated that relationship. He did. He stoops to us, not the other way around. And another image is used to humble us. That's of, of shepherd and sheep. Guess which one we are? The sheep, right? We are his people, and we are the sheep of his pasture. That means we're entirely dependent upon his care. But when we understand that the, the covenant we have, when we understand the covenant, we have the full confidence that we will receive such care, the kind of care that a shepherd gives to his sheep. That God has made a promise to provide for us, and it's a promise that he'll never fail on, never renege on. And as we look to the New Testament, that metaphor of sheep and shepherd, it comes into greater clarity, and, and it fills in for us something of what it cost for God to make this declaration. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's easier said than done, isn't it, friends? Because, tragically, we have no desire to be God's people. We are sheep who are not interested in the pasture that he's placed us in. We are sheep that cry out, the lines have not fallen for me in pleasant places. I hate the inheritance of the Lord, and I hate the Lord himself, and I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to hear about him. I don't want to think about him. I don't want to talk to him. That is who we are by nature. We're rebellious sheep. Not just sheep that kind of wander astray in stupidity, though we do that, but sheep that almost have this mission to get away from the shepherd. And I'm not a farmer, and I'm not a shepherd, but I think if I had an animal like that, I'd want to put it down. But that's not what God does for us, is it? Well, it's the opposite. What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd won't put you down. I lay down my life for the sheep. What does it mean for God to say, I will be their God, and they shall be my people? That means the death of his son. What love of God to bring us into the sheepfold. Perverse and foolish, off I strayed, and yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. And so we have to ask, who do I think I am? Do I have, do I have pride? Are you prideful today? Any real sense of your sin should decimate any vestiges of pride in your heart. You belong to God not because you've done anything to make you worthy of it, not because there's something in you that's attractive, but because Christ carried you, kicking and screaming on his shoulders and placed you into his eternal pastures. And we know that for Christ to carry us means he had to carry a cross. 
And how could you respond to that gospel news in any way other than with gratitude? That's the fourth thing we see in verse 4. We're filled with thankfulness. Covenant theology makes us thankful. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Give thanks to him seems to be put on parallel with the final command right after. Bless his name as though that to do the one is to do the other. To give thanks is to bless his name. Do you bless God, friends? That might, does that sound odd to you? Does that sound a little weird, boys and girls? Does it sound weird to say that we can bless God? We're used to hearing about God blessing us. That makes sense. The Bible talks about how the greater will bless the lesser. How can we, who are the lesser, bless God? That was the same question that was posed by a, a curious janitor who happened to be in, uh, cleaning up in, in the background um, several decades ago when Donald Gray Barnhouse was visiting Hope College in Holland and preaching for them. And the janitor heard him speaking, I'm not sure if it was on Psalm 103 or Psalm 100, but uh, talking about blessing the Lord. And so this janitor uh, somewhat sheepishly approached Barnhouse afterwards and said, can you explain this to me? How, could, how in the world could we bless the Lord? And Barnhouse used a helpful illustration asking if the janitor had any children. And he said, yes, I do. And he said, do they give you gifts at Christmas? Yes, they do. Well, who picks them out? Well, their mother uh, takes them and, and they pick them out with her. And who pays for it? He said, well, I do. The janitor said. And Barnhouse said, well, does that make you feel like the gift is any less wonderful when you open it? And he said, no, of course not. I'm just delighted that my children would love me and would want to, to give me this gift. And Barnhouse is saying, and so it is As we bless God. How do we bless God? We only bless him with the blessings with which he has first blessed us. And Barnhouse calls this the boomerang of love. First to us, back to him. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Give everything that you are, all that you have, to the God who would dare say to a worthless wretch like you, I am his and he is mine. Wow. How could we respond in any way other than to be thankful? Every song of ours must be tuned to the key of thankfulness. Well, we close with verse 5. And we find another motivation for a joyful and a thankful life of worship. What's the motivation? Well, because the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. And here what I want us to see is that understanding what it means that God is a covenant God, a a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, a God who binds us in a relationship that will never be severed, what this means, it doesn't just make us joyful, worshipful, humble, and thankful, but it makes us confident. It can give you boldness today, dear sinner. As you feel the weight of sin and shame and and you tremble even to speak to God and you wonder, maybe you're racked with guilt, could I ever belong to Him? Does He really love me? This verse is all the confidence that you need. He is good and His love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. You know what this means? This means that you belong to God as long as His love lasts. How long does God's love last? Forever forever. His steadfast love endures forever. That that word translated steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word. You've heard it before, uh, uh, perhaps 
as we've mentioned it from time to time, hesed, a, a good Hebrew word to know. Um, it, it, and it's translated various ways throughout Scripture because it's one of those that doesn't have a perfect correlation in English. And so translators are always kind of throwing up their hands. And so it's mercy, it's faithfulness, it's steadfast love, it's loving kindness. But it's always in the context of covenant. It's the idea that God would bestow grace and favor and love upon us even when, and perhaps especially when, we don't deserve it. It's the kind of love that God has been showing for generations and promises to show for generations. The love that he showed to Adam and Eve after their rebellion, the love that he, he, he showed to, to Abraham when he called him out of Ur the Chaldees and said, I'm going to give you a great possession and a great people, and he reaffirms it to Moses and to David and the prophets and up to today even. Since it's a faithfulness to all generations, it means it's God's promise for you and me today. And if it's with you today, it will be with you tomorrow. That's the joy that undergirds this entire psalm. That that this great God that I am privileged to know and to worship will be mine Forever and ever. I never have to imagine living a day apart from him. I was watching a film several years ago, and and there was this line that has stuck with me ever since. And in this movie, the father figure is diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he's going to die soon. And there's a scene where where the, the wife, the mother of this one who's been diagnosed with cancer, is alone with her adult son, And she confides in her son this. I am so uninterested in a life without your father. I'm so uninterested in a life without your father. It was life with with her husband that gave her joy, that gave her purpose in life. And she can't bear the thought of not having him. Married couples here, the thought of life after the death of your spouse is entirely unpalatable. It's not only uninteresting, it's terrifying. And I think we could say the same is true for parents thinking of losing a child or children, losing mom or dad. Life would be scary without them. And yet, we're told here that we never, ever even need to conceive of a world where God is in our Heavenly Father, where Christ is in our faithful bridegroom. We don't even need to think about it. It's not a possibility. It's not on the table. Having confidence that, that I am a covenant child of God, that my relationship with Him will never end, that changes everything. Do you have that confidence today? Are you bold with that knowledge today? Nothing in life can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. In fact, our life with him will only get better, only get more interesting, because right now we see through mere darkly, but soon face to face. Speaking of Psalm 100, Charles Spurgeon once said that nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this psalm by a vast congregation. We experienced that already, didn't we? There is something that is 
so wonderful about this psalm, and it's been beloved for, for years and years and years for many reasons. But part of the reason that it's so beloved is because of its covenantal themes, because it so captures, so, so perfectly captures the heart of a believer who understands that he is in a covenant relationship with a covenant-keeping God, that he belongs to a God who will never fail. And so what joy... What worship, what, what humility, what gratitude, and, and yes, what confidence is found in this psalm. It is a song that never gets old, and in one sense, we could truly say it's a song that never ends. And so, friends, let our thankfulness and our praise and our joy be as the Lord's love to us, vast, unmeasured, and without end. Our Father, we thank you for your character, that you are the God of promise. Thank you that you have made a declaration of us which can never be changed. I will be their God and they will be my people forever and ever. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Cause us never to forget it and to live as those who have confidence that we are your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.